Welcome back. It's great to have you. The end of a six-week term, the pandemic, and a sore throat got me behind schedule in my release of episodes. I'm hoping that this weekend I can get caught up with the past three weeks' worth of material. Here's a conversation I had with Dr. Kalisha Walden at the Boca campus. I hope you enjoy it. So, um, I actually went to school to be a teacher. Um, my undergraduate degree, my bachelor's, is in elementary education. However, I did not always think that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I remember third in third grade, um, during the career fairs where they ask you to dress up um, according to what you want to be when you grow up. My third grade year, I dressed up to be a teacher. I was so excited, but absolutely no one in my class dressed up to be a teacher. So I felt like, well, why doesn't anyone want to be a teacher? So I kind of shied away from the thought of being a teacher. Um, I had peers and um, other teachers telling me, like, you're so smart. You need to be a doctor. You need to go into the medical field. So that's initially what I set out to do. However, ironically, during my high school experience, I had a principal that was very nurturing um, and she kind of took me under her wings. And I remember my senior year, she called me into her office and she said, um, Kalisha, um, the English teacher is going on sabbatical and um, not sabbatical. No, she's pregnant. She's going on, on maternity leave and we don't have a substitute for the English class. Would you mind kind of filling in for a few weeks? And I said, well, I'm just a senior. And she said, well, you've taken all the advanced classes. Um, you've been an assistant to the teacher before. So we have confidence that you'll be able to do it. So she assigned me to the 11th grade English class. And it was such a rewarding experience. Like those. And just so I understand this correctly, I'm sorry to interrupt. This is while you're in high school? In high school. I was a senior in high school. I was a senior in high school. Um, and she assigned me to 11th grade English class for a few weeks. And it was an amazing experience. Like those 11th graders looked up to me. They actually treated me like I was their actual teacher. Wow. It was amazing. From that point on, I was like, well, maybe I am supposed to be a teacher. Like I have 11th graders that are, they're sitting quietly in the class. They're listening to the lecture. Um, they're turning in homework. Like maybe I do have the gift for this. Um, so I started my soft, my freshman year off at college as a nursing major transferred over to education. And ever since then, I think that was the best decision ever. I absolutely love what I do every day. Um, so when I finished college, I accepted a job as a third and fourth grade multi-grade teacher. So I taught elementary for approximately seven years before um, getting a job as a principal of a private school in Broward County. And ironically, the principal of my high school was now the superintendent of the district that I was um, teaching in. Wow. She said, Kalisha, I know you got it. You have it inside of you. Um, let's step up and let's be principal. So I did that for four years. Um, and I left that position to finish my PhD. And then after that, I was given the opportunity to come to Palm Beach State full time. 
Um, I've been teaching at Palm Beach State for years. I started off as an adjunct in 2006 and full-time in 2016. So that's me in a nutshell. Um, my um, motto in life is if I haven't made you better by my presence in your life, then I haven't done my job. So I seek to do my job every day. <laughs> I'm curious, what, what, what were the other people in your third grade class dressed as? If no one else is dressed as a teacher, which is fine. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how many of elementary school classes w- would have people dressing up as teachers. But out of curiosity, what were the other kids dressed as? Nurses doctors, um, businessmen, women, nothing related to education at all. Um, I mean, I, I even had a close friend of mine say, you need to stop thinking about being a teacher because you'll be wasting all that intellect that you have. And I, I was kind of offended by that um, because I believe that teachers shape and impact the world. Um, and you could not be a successful doctor if you didn't have a good teacher. Um, But um, from there, I found joy in doing what I do every day. um, And that's why I am still a teacher. (laughs) Do you you find that it was, uh, that it is the same regardless of what age group you're teaching? So, you, you know, I haven't I've been around kindergartners, I've been around third and fourth graders, but I haven't been in a room with them day in and day out for an entire year or for seven years for that matter. So what are the differences and similarities between teaching third and fourth graders and teaching uh, students at Palm Beach State College? I want to say the biggest um, difference would be the parent element is not there. Oh, sure. And ironically... My teacher education program did not prepare me to deal with parents. Um, That was one of the scariest things to deal with initially as a brand new teacher. Um, What do you say? How often do you say it? When um, they're mean or disrespectful, how do you respond? Like those are things that I had to learn. Um, So that's the biggest difference um, between um, the elementary and the um, college students that I I, um, now teach. Um, But another one uh, would be that I found that my elementary and middle school students were very much dependent on me. Um, They were dependent on what I would bring to the learning situation. Um, And while my college students do the same, um, I nurture them a little bit differently because I don't want to um, be the center of their thinking. I want them and, and I don't want to be the one that takes knowledge and deposit in their heads I want them to problematize. I want them to ask questions. I want us to co-create knowledge together in the classroom. And while I believe that while I was an elementary or middle school teacher, I believe it even more now because I am training my college students to be future educators. Um, So I think those are some of the the differences um, between them. I absolutely loved being an elementary middle school um, teacher. Um, I had the space to be creative. I wasn't working in a school district that was, you have to do this, you have to do that, and this is when you have to do it. I had flexibility to be creative and to expose my students to opportunities that I knew that they would not receive if they were in another type of school. Um, 
So sometimes I miss that. <laughs> I miss that. And that's why I am a volunteer in a lot of um, schools today, because I want to never forget the feeling of being a teacher in the classroom on that level, because I want to make sure I afford my college students real world um, examples and scenarios to better prepare them um, for the for the experience they would have in their own classrooms. So I try to stay connected to that great level. I support principals as well um, because I believe that I must always be a learner in order to be a better teacher for my students, um, especially on the college level. Sure. So two, two things uh, I want to talk about that are uh, but related to what you mentioned. So how did you figure out how to deal with uh, parents or people that were not polite with you? Uh, was that something that came through mentorship or was that just trial and tribulations and, you know, you, you try something and it doesn't work and you try something else and that gets, you know, a diffused response. So then you just say, okay, I'm going to do that in the future. So was it something that was learned or was it something that you just had to figure out on your own? Um, I think it was a combination of both. My first year of teaching, um, I had a veteran teacher come up to me and she said, I want to mentor you. Um, and so I would sit in her classroom and look, look at different things that she did, um, look at different artifacts, um, like letters she sent home to her, her parents. Um, and I kind of started learning um, from there what to do. So from there, it was communicating with them on a regular basis. So every Friday, a letter went home to parents. It provided them with an overview of what we did for the week. Um, every week I sit home graded work on Friday so that parents can see, you know, what their son or daughter's progress was for that week. And while that was very time consuming for a teacher to be that caught up with grading every week, it just made my parents feel more comfortable that they knew what was going on in the classroom. So I was willing to make that sacrifice. So increased communication and um, not only calling home when the student did something wrong or broke a classroom rule, but calling home also to let them know of the good things. I caught Sarah doing this today. I am so proud of her. And so building that trust with the parents made a world of a difference. Um, it was easier to do it with the elementary students. When I moved to middle school, it became a little bit more of a challenge because, you know, they can be a li little bit mouthy and parents really, really, really don't know what's going on. But I would make it my business to arrive to school early and I'll stand in the um, parking lot waiting for parents to um, yeah. pass by and drop off their kid and just have like informal conversations and then when they saw that, okay, Miss Walden is somebody that we can trust, and she really does have my child's best interest at heart, then that barrier that often exists between the teacher and the home broke down. So then I started getting invitations to basketball games, invitations to their church services, um, because now the parents saw that I was really vested in their um, children. And... So I learned that throughout uh, my teaching career. So when I became a principal, 
when it came time for parent-teacher conferences, I had 100% participation. Like parents knew you are not getting a report card until you come into the school. Let's chat. Let's talk. Let's see how we can continue to um, grow um, our students together in a positive direction. So, yes, it was learned through mentorship and then trial and error. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. But um, always being committed to the process um, is what I think made things more successful in me learning how to deal with parents. <laughs> the The second thing that stuck out in your answer were uh, two words that you used that uh, well, really, really stuck out. Creativity and flexibility, or, or some version of those two. So what do you think is uh, perhaps the reason maybe for why you look at your time spent in third and fourth grade as a time that allowed you, or what what changed from then to now? Uh, not to say that you know you don't have the flexibility anymore or you don't have the creativity anymore, but if you are left longing for something like that, or if those are the words you use to reflect upon your time when you were in the in the third and the fourth grade, uh, how has that dynamic changed to where? Uh, well, do you not feel that you have the ability to be as creative and or as flexible? I don't know if that question makes any sense. It makes sense. It makes okay. sense. And I think that now creativity looks different because you have more parameters. Um, when I was in, when I was working as a principal or an elementary school teacher, there was more of a budget. And if that budget could not work with what I was doing, I was single at the time, I went into my own pocket. But as a teacher and a principal, I was making more than what I'm making right now as a professor. So it's, it's not as easy to say, I need to make a personal investment in this project. Um, but I also think that um, there's just more parameters now. I'm getting the funding to do it, proving that it's something that's viable. Um, for example, for some time now, I've been trying to get um, a classroom on campus that's outfitted for um, my student teachers or the, my students that want to be teachers, where they can really experience what a classroom looks like, feels like, etc., to connect that theory with practice more for them. Um, and I put the proposal together. It's been a, maybe a couple of years now. I do have a designated room now, but of course there is no room in the budget for it to be uh, repainted and, and repurposed for the things that I would uh, like for the students to be able to do. Um, so I'm creative with the limited resources I do have. My associate dean is very supportive in trying her best to get what I need. Um, so now we have, you know, arts and craft materials. We have bulletin boards where they are, they learn how to make their classroom decor more inclusive. Um, they have access to a variety of technologies. But I wish for them to really, really have more than that. And I guess I have to go to route, the route of maybe seeking out some grants to do it. Um, but of course, that's more time. And to me, time is money. <laughs> So um, there, I, I am in a space where I can be creative, but I wish that there was more funding to allow for even more creativity. Um, 
but I just didn't feel like I was limited in that regard um, because I had supportive parents in the elementary school. So if I needed something and they worked for an organization, I got things donated. Wow. I was planning a trip to Washington, D.C. Um, for some eighth graders who had never gone out of the state of Florida. And so some of the parents worked for some of the food chains and got food donated. We had food sales on Sunday, raised $10,000 in a matter of two or three months. And those students were able to go to D.C., New Jersey area, New York for free. Like, but I had connections to parents who had some connections, uh, which made that um, an e easier to be able to be more creative for the sake of the students being exposed to different opportunities. So maybe I just need to link up with someone that has access to some funds on this end and maybe um, those things can come to life a little bit more on this level. But the budget is definitely or the, the funding is not exactly there. That's not at all where my brain went. I, I thought when I asked that question, uh, and as a result, I don't have a follow-up now, because I was expecting you to say something like um, the, the coverage issue, in that you know the amount of material that needs to be discussed in these courses is so significant that you, know, you, you have to kind of stick to a script. And I, I was talking with a colleague earlier today uh, and, and, you know, one of her texts was, uh, I'm very far behind in this course and I kind of just have to start lecturing now instead of trying more project-based and more inquiry-based learning type stuff. Um, and I, am sympathetic to her plight, uh, where, you know, there, there, there are standards to be met and there are topics that need to be covered. So I thought that that's where you were going to go with it. I... No, no, because I believe that when it comes to flexibility in the curriculum, I have it. Um, because I use the standards as a guide to where I'm, I need to go. And I don't use a textbook to do that. Otherwise, I would feel like I would have to go chapter by chapter. I take those learning standards or those learning outcomes and I create the curriculum based on those. And if it means using four chapters in a textbook and using other supplemental materials elsewhere, I believe that that's what I need to do as, as an educator. So I'm not textbook um, focused. I'm more standard focused or learning outcome focused. And because of that, I'm able to um, allow the topic allow the standards to drive my topics, but the topics to be as broad enough that I can cover multiple, multiple standards at one time. So while I may be talking about um, socioeconomic status and poverty in a classroom, there are several learning outcomes that I can target by that one topic. Um, so I don't feel limited in, in that regard that I have all of this stuff to teach. I think that as a teacher, um, and my PhD is in curriculum design. So this is what I do. I, I, I take my topics, I take the learning outcomes, and I actually think like, what do my students really need? Like when they leave this classroom, what type of information um, do they need? What experiences do I need to expose them to? And I allow that to drive what I do. So whether I teach it in a 16 week semester, a 12 week or an eight, my students are gonna get what they need. Um, the curriculum may look just a little bit different um, because of the time span, 
but um, I've never felt limited in being able to cover what I need to cover or that I don't have flexibility in that regard. Um, I mostly teach hybrids and fully online and the hybrids allow me to be able to record lectures and content and to do more hands-on and practical things in the classroom. And that uh, allows me to cover more um, in content, but to also show that my students how they, how they can apply this information in a real world setting. That's more important to me. Um, teach them how to fish and they'll always be able to fish. And so I want them to know where to get the information from and how to apply it versus that rote memorization that after another class or two, they'll forget it. I want to teach them how to apply it and then they won't forget it. So what would be your, your, your sales pitch? Because I, I've tried uh, flipping courses and I've come up with reasonably engaging videos with questions that are built in. And, you know, I make them short enough to where uh, I can try to keep their attention span, but also not, you know, so short that I can't cover the material in sufficient depth. And I find that all of that planning and, and you know, spending my summer vacation and, vin and winter vacation doing all that stuff uh, comes to a grinding halt when students simply don't watch the videos. So what would be your sales pitch? You, you seem to have a lot more success with this, so forgive me if I'm, I'm making this more a personal thing, but what would you say to a group of students uh, that, that perhaps are not engaging in the manner that you had hoped for? So that when they come to class, if they have basic foundational pieces of knowledge in their head already, then you can expand on it and say, okay, this is how you would uh, experience it in an actual classroom. Let's uh, play that out. Or, you know, for instance, in mathematics, okay, you know how to do the easy stuff. Let's work on the hard stuff that you would have trouble with if you were doing it at home by yourself. So what would be your way of, of convincing that particular student that, Hey, this is to your advantage because I've tried, you know, good cap, good cop, bad cop, medium cop, no cop. And uh, for some students, I haven't been able to get through. So what would you do in that, say, in that sense? Well, I think that every group of students, um, every group is different. So one set of strategies for one particular group may not necessarily work for another. But I have tried things such as creating rules of engagement. And one of the rules um, that I have for my class is that you have to come prepared. So whatever the reading assignment is, whatever discussion board um, was assigned, like it's non-negotiable. You have to come to class. And guess what? That's going to be the foundation of the class for the next session. So I'll be able to tell <laughs> if you actually read it or if you did the assignment. Um, so sometimes I will give them note catchers and those note catchers, they will have to read the chapter, um, take notes, um, think about um, um, what was interest, interesting or intriguing about the, the chapter that they wanted to be able to share two or three bullets. Um, what are some questions that they still have that they want me to be able to answer? And that's how I start off my lectures with those note catchers. So I'm going around the classroom calling each student um, one at a time to contribute to our conversation. Um, I tell them, I don't like to lecture. I want this to be us creating 
knowledge together. I want my classes to be engaging and it can't happen if you don't do your part as a student. So I've tried that. Um, I've tried asking them or getting their input on what type of activities that they would like to do in the virtual setting um, and regularly keeping them abreast of what their grades are. Um, so usually before class, I would check into the hybrid course and I will see who's not passing, who didn't turn in the assignments. And those are the people that I speak with either right before class or after class so that they know that I know you're not doing your work. What's the problem? Is there something that I can help you with? Um, and I don't accept excuses. Like you, you have to do the work, whether it's for credit or not, because you'll, you need this information to be successful with our next topic. Everything builds. So I try to increase student accountability. And typically after the second conversation, um, we've had that they notice that I've noticed that they're not doing their part or that they're stumbling over their words, trying to come up with something to say, then it starts to click that they really do need to come to class prepared. I still may have one or two students that I've worked with and tried to get them to do what they need to do and they still don't do it. But at that point, I have done all that I could do or can do as a teacher to really support them. And now they have made a conscious decision that they don't want to be successful. Um, so I try like um, different technologies like Flipgrid and different ways to try to keep them engaged so that they would want to do it. I try to go over the assignments before they're given so that their fear of an assignment that looks too hard wouldn't be the reason why they don't complete it. Um, and of course I make my office hours um, open so that if they do need support, that I'm there to support them. And I found that those have been some strategies. But of course, there are, you know, some students that no matter what you try, it's not going to work. Um, but I've learned throughout the years of teaching hybrids how to teach a hybrid. <laughs> it didn't start off as successful. Um, but it's try on error because every group of students is different, like I said, just trying. Um, and hoping that they'll bite it and see how important it is for them to invest in their own success in, in the class. Fair enough. Earlier you mentioned at, that one of the things that uh, I think it was the, the way the classrooms were decorated so that it was more of an inclusive environment for, for all students do you mind giving an example of what specifically that would entail? How, how would you encourage future teachers of America to be more inclusive in their classroom outside of, you know, decoration? Sure. But what else would uh, motivate them to be better? I, I don't know if there's a better phrase than that. And I'm sure that there is, but I hope that question makes sense that how, how do you get students to think about what they need to do in order to be uh, a better person so that they can create better individuals in their rooms? Awesome question. And I start um, the majority of the classes that I teach for education with asking students questions such as if a particular student walks in your classroom day one, for example, um, a black male with dreads, pants dangling, 
Like, what are some of those first thoughts you will have about those students or that particular student? And so now they're talking about, you know, what they would think, how this person would learn. He would probably be a distraction in the classroom. And so I asked them, like, what if that student is totally different than what you initially thought? So I asked them or challenged them to uncover that implicit bias. I asked them to uncover the things that they think they know about people that they really don't know because they really never um, interacted with those people before. Um, I asked them to uncover where those biases come from because in order for an educator to be inclusive, they the work starts with them, right? So once you can say, oh, I do have this bias, you can then say, I need to do these things in order to be the teacher I need to be for students from that group that will come into my classroom. Otherwise, I won't be able to provide an equitable education for them. So we do a series of activities um, talking about um, our beliefs, where those beliefs come from, who taught us that information. Did it come from the media or were you taught that from your dinner table at home? What did your um, circle of friends look like growing up? Why do you think it was that way? Um, examining what your circle of friends look like now. What do you think about that? And from that point, um, I asked them to, throughout the semester, think about just one area of their identity and how they can make that better by the end of the course or how they can start to think differently about that. Because once you start thinking differently about people, you'll think differently about your students, you'll think differently about the curriculum, you'll think differently about the activities you include, you'll think differently about the books that you include in your library, you'll think differently about your decor in the classroom. So it all starts with self-examination. And then from there, through you know throughout the semester, we talk about uh, multicultural literature, if looking at various curriculums, like what's missing in this curriculum? What did the textbook authors intentionally omit? Because they have to make those type of choices. What voices did they include? What knowledge is not there? Um, why do you think it's that way? And as a teacher who's inclusive, what do you think you need to expose your students to so that they can walk away with a holistic understanding of what you're studying? So an, a, an example would be we're studying, um, let's say, the Civil War. Um, you have that of the version from the North. You have the version of what happened in the South from the soldiers. You have the slaves who fought. You have the women. When you look in our textbooks, you'll probably see like a couple of lines about what the Black soldiers did. You may see one, one sentence about what the women did. Um, but you're going to mostly get a glimpse of what happened through the eyes of white America. So if your students are studying this topic and you have, you know, 50% of your students are black and another percentage of your students are Hispanic. And then you have majority female students in that classroom. Like how would you change the curriculum to ensure that they are exposed to multiple voices whether it's in that textbook or not. Because research shows that when students see themselves in the curriculum, they're more engaged with that curriculum. They have a different mindset. 
So those are the type of things that um, I seek to do uh, with my students, with my education majors, um, starting with them, identifying, you know, aspects of their identity that, you know, they may need to think differently about, and then identifying how they can be more inclusive in the books that they have in their classrooms, how they can be more inclusive with the sources that they use to supplement the curriculum. Um, and so we go through different case studies, um, different scenarios. What would you do um, thinking about the theory that they're learning and trying to connect it or apply it to what could be a real life situation in their, in their future classrooms? Bringing in a variety of journal articles and even connecting it to some of the stuff um, that's happening in our world today. Like I gave them a prompt, like if you were a K through 12 teacher now, what would be different about your teaching now that you're in a virtual setting? Like how would you make sure you engage all of your students? How would you check in with your students? So even using some of the things that that's happening in the world around them to get them to start thinking, um, that's what happens in my classrooms, whether it's virtual, remote, online, or face-to-face. -face. The students, I think it's my job to get them to think about being more inclusive. Um, and ironically, the students that I teach today, they're much different than the students I taught five or six years ago. Their thinking has become more inclusive um, naturally. So I, I don't have to work as hard at it now. That was going to be that the next thing that I was I was thinking of of asking you was that what you've described is remarkably uncomfortable for for people that have implicit biases. Everyone has implicit biases, no matter how enlightened one might think that they are. Everyone has some sort of bent on one side or the other. It, it might be very minor, but and it, it's very, very, very difficult to be that self-reflective and say, oh, this is what I learned in class today and I, I'm biased against a, a black male student with dreads with sagging pants and I had written him off and he turned out to be the best student I've ever had. Uh, how do I change that perception? And I would think that you know if you're dealing with a student in the third and the fourth grade, uh, perhaps their own viewpoints on on the world haven't been that cemented yet. And by the time you get someone in in say a state college setting where you, you know they've been through middle school, they've been through high school, they've had family members, they've had uh, interactions. I meant with family members, with friends, with peers with uh, members of the religious community. So they've had all these interactions that have either bolstered their opinions, good and bad, uh, or, you know, have solidified these biases that they would walk into your class with. So the, the thing that I was wondering was, how do students react to uh, this drastic change, um, especially when, for instance, in class, they're being asked to evaluate how they feel or how they think about people at large. And then perhaps when they go home or maybe they go talk to their friends, their friends or family members might not share the same beliefs that they're now starting to espouse, perhaps. Correct. And there have been instances where students have shared that 
doing this type of work in a classroom, I wouldn't say would be for everyone <laughs> because you definitely have to be that type of instructor that is um, empathetic and compassionate, in my opinion, and be willing to invest time in building relationships. So my tip, my typical first day of class is just about relationship building. I want to know about you. I want you to know about me. Um, why do you want to be a teacher? Um, and that first day of class, I have students who are actually who have actually cried, sharing experiences um, as to why they want to be a teacher and or the discrimination they felt growing up in um, the school system and how they want to make a difference. Um, and so I think initially it's about building that trust in the classroom that what happens here is for us to grow and learn together. I never put myself in a position where I'm the person of power in the classroom um, because I think it's important for them to see that I'm always in the position of a learner as well. Um, so we do a lot of team building, getting to know you activities that first day of class. And I kind of do that throughout the first couple of weeks of the semester, um, because I believe that creating that sense of community is important for them to be open and honest about who they are and feel comfortable enough to do that. Um, and from there, we kind of do like some little carousel activities where we have different groups of people. And I give them literature about how these groups of people may have, be, have been marginalized in the school system or how the school system may have disenfranchised them. Um, and they begin to like write down all these things that they're learning. And they're like, wow, I did not know that it exists. And oftentimes that is the reason why um, the bias is a little bit more stronger um, or solidified initially is because they don't know. They've never heard of it. They've never experienced someone for that group besides what they were told by their parents or what they saw in the media. They really never had interactions with these people. They never sought to really understand their background or understand why they're perceived to be that way or not. So there's some time spent um, talking about those different things. And then from there, the semester rolls on. I have rules of engagement, like there's equity of voice. Everyone has a right to speak, um, but we're also going to respect that everyone may have a different perspective. We don't have to agree on every, everything. We don't have to be on the same page with everything. But in order for us to be able to learn, we need to be able to step into the perspective of someone else. And that's why I think it's important for educators not to just teach from a textbook because a textbook is limited in perspective. Um, it's important for them to be exposed to multiple perspectives because that impacts the way they think and what they do and um, how well they'll be able to give back to society. Have I had pushback from students? Yeah, but it'll be, okay, um, let's chat after class. So, because I want the student to know, we may not agree, but that doesn't mean I don't like you. And it, doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean I don't respect what you believe or what you think. I just want us to be on the same page that it's okay for us to have differences. It's okay for us to think differently. But if we're going to be educators and we're going to be shaping minds for the future, we can't be, we cannot allow our biases to impact how we engage with our students, right? You may have a religious bias. 
I mean, I've had students say, you know, I'm a Christian. I don't support the LGBTQ community. That's fine. That's fine. But if you have an LGBTQ student walking in your classroom, it's your obligation to teach him or her as well as you teach someone that identifies differently. And um, that's what we get at in, in, in my classes. And I think that those healthy conversations, um, they leave changed, whether it's only one thing that they think differently about or they've learned. Um, I just want them to walk away um, being more inclusive because our world is just such an uproar right now. And um, I think that educators have the power to influence um, a positive change. And so it's my job to teach them how to, you know, to think differently or to even um, embrace something that they've never considered worthy enough to embrace. On that note, um, you mentioned earlier that in order to engage in this sort of uh, teaching or, or instruction, you have to be empathetic and you have to be uh, caring and you have to want to build relationships with students or people that uh, perhaps you don't disagree with, but you still have to uh, respect their beliefs and, and be inclusive to them. What in your personal life made you that instructor or made you that way? Um, well, I come from a Christian background, Christian home, and I um, attended Christian schools growing up. Um, and one big component of my educational experience was that of service. And so it was that part of you not being selfish, um, that you understand or put yourself in a position where you understand someone else and do something good. Um, I would say that my upbringing included a, a lot of that. Um, so while I have progressed in my thinking and I'm definitely more empathetic now, I think that that was the foundation. Um, my parents and family, they're very service oriented. Um, like for example, this past um, Christmas, before the kids can open gifts, we were going around um, passing goodie bags out to the homeless. <laughs> we got toothpaste and a variety of toiletries. We packed them up, put a, a gift card of $5 and a, a, a spiritual message in there. And we took the kids riding around some of part, some parts of the city, just passing out those bags to the homeless because we wanted them to know that in order to receive, you must be willing to give. Um, so those types of things are ingrained into me from um, my upbringing. So I just want to say that my empathy is, a, is an extension of that in, in my classroom. Um, and then from there, just um, being very um, um, I don't know, I'm a nurturer. I'm an imp overall. So I think it's easier for me to be able to be that compassion educator. I've done a lot of research on multicultural education with marginalized groups. So um, I just seek to be that type of educator because I know that some of our students that we serve, they're coming from home and life situations that's so different and they need that type of 
person. Now, don't get me wrong. Empathy doesn't mean that you don't have parameters or boundaries or structure. Um, There are some times I have to, you know, be a little bit more stronger with some students than others because some can take advantage of the empathy and compassion. Um, But overall, that hasn't been the experience. Um, My students leave the class, my classes saying that, you know, you're a genuine professor. Like, can you teach all my classes? But then you have those that, you know, leave saying, I had a good time. You know, I I learned a lot. And then that's the end of it, which is fine, too, because you're there to learn. But um, that empathy comes from my um, upbringing. Um, And like I said, I believe that if I haven't made you better or to think a little bit different as a result of that moment that we have together, then I really haven't done my job or what I believe my calling um, is in life. I, I was thinking of a question and now I forgot. I have to find a way of maybe either taking notes while I do this or, or, or find out from other podcasters how they do this properly. But uh, I, I guess a more innocuous question would be, were you always in Florida or family? Oh, no, now I remember. Sorry. Forget about that that stupid question. No one cares. Uh, the, the question was, so I spoke with Dave Rossman a while back, Mark Fetterman, and I, I'm sure I asked this question to other people as well, um, where people that have had uh, interesting life experiences, let's say, and, and I would argue that, uh, you know, if you, if you grow up with a family that, I want to make sure I use my words carefully here. If you've either been through a very good life experience, or if you if your life experiences have been good and positive by and large, or negative in some regards, you come away with some sort of appreciation for other people that maybe don't have it as good as you. So you mentioned... Uh, you know, faith having a big component or faith being a big component of why you choose to do the things the way you do them. But then you also mentioned that you've done a lot of research in multiculturalism. And and so do you find that it's from your readings that you experience that growth because you've always had a religious upbringing so that sort of wasn't the variable in the equation that was the constant that that was always the same and then the thing that changed was that you know you got a phd or you got a master's or you got a bachelor's degree and that was something that changed while the underlying faith has been a constant throughout so do you think that the change in your perspective uh or growth as you said happened as a result of a combination of the two forces or was it, you know, I was always a good person and now I'm a better person because I've read more. Um, I would say it will be a combination of, um, education and experience. So yes, faith is that constant through all of, all of it, but as a teacher and as a principal, Um, I saw things, experienced things um, with different families that really opened my eyes to the need for a certain type of teacher for some of my students. Um, 
for example, I had a situation where as a, I believe I was teaching third and fourth grade that particular year. And I had this young um, boy in my class. I want to say he was about nine years old and he would come to school with his uniform dirty, looking hungry. Um, so, you know, I did my own little investigation trying to figure out like, what's this boy's story? Well, before I became um, his teacher, um, he ended up, um, his grandmother ended up passing away and he was sitting on her lap and didn't even know that she was dead. So now he was living with the grandfather um, and his mother and then his mother passed away. Um, so he had some, you know, grief that he really hadn't worked through as, as a young boy. And his grandfather was older in age. And, you know, now he was responsible to be a caretaker for like three boys. Um, and that's an added responsibility. So I started to the, the faith side of me, along with this experience, um, I started bringing um, a basket of food to keep under my desk. So if I saw the way he looked when he came to the door, because he always came to school late, um, I knew that I needed to slip out, call him into the hallway and sneak some food so he can eat something before coming to class. Um, that particular school year, I worked really closely with his grandfather to try to get him on par. And then what happens? His grandfather dies. So from that point, I'm picking him up from school, I'm picking him up from home, taking him to school, taking him home, tutoring him, um, communicating with an uncle that lives all the way in Mexico, um, trying to get him what he needs. So that experience really changed my outlook on my students because they can come to me one way at school and I have no idea what they're going into when they leave me. So it made me change my homework practices. Like I wasn't sending home a whole list of stuff to do at home anymore because I didn't know, will the parents be able to help them or not? So I kind of restructured the way I did things based on that experience and other experiences um, throughout my um, teaching career in K through 12. Um, and that kind of just spilled over into, into my college teaching. Um, being able to share these stories with my students and um, how, you know, I had to change up a few things because the students wasn't getting it. Even me walking out and quitting because it was too much. Like those experiences, along with learning more about how to deal with those situations or how to think differently, I think that that um, was the reason why there was growth. So for example, I had a group of I think I was teaching seventh and eighth grade this particular year. I had about 13 students. It's a very small class. And I want to say out of all 13, maybe 10 of them were boys. And they just weren't getting it. Like, I, maybe I wasn't relaying the information in a way that was engaging. But I had to actually sit back and think to myself, what can I do in order to make what I'm teaching interesting to really hook them. So I started listening to their conversations at lunchtime or when they had downtime in the classroom and they were always talking about football and they were always talking about these their two favorite teams. So 
One day I overheard them talk about this big game that was coming on the night, one night that week. So I decided to watch the football game. Now, I do not like football, but I made a sacrifice that day <laughs> because I wanted to see what, what are they so excited about and how can I use that excitement in my math class? Because by far, I'm not a math teacher. I can get my own A, but I don't have that deep conceptual knowledge to teach something multiple ways. That wasn't me, but I had to teach um, seventh, eighth grade math that year. So I was teaching mean, median, mode, and then the idea came, man, I can use the, the statistics from the football game in my lesson tomorrow and bring the newspaper and have them to um, um, come up with the mean, median, mode of all the players. And just that change and that addition of something that was interesting to them, they got it. Now, we had been doing mean, median, mode for about two weeks, and they couldn't master it. But as soon as I incorporated something that they were interested in, they got the mathematical concepts. And I was like, okay, I need to do this more often. So learning about that was in one of my courses, how you need to really look at the funds of knowledge of your students and to use that funds of knowledge in, in your class and how you interact with them. It was because I was learning that theory in class that it made me think differently about how to approach it with my students. And then it changed the way I taught from, from that point on. So it's experience, the, the learning throughout my master's and doctoral program, as well as that you know, faith line that has gone throughout my, my life, if that answers your question. It does. Uh, the, the typical follow-up then is, do you think it's possible to get to this more enlightened stage without either experiencing the, the the negative aspects of humanity yourself or you know helping someone else get through that time in their life so is it do, do you find that dealing with that hands-on uh, whether it be happening to you or whether you're going through some tough time or whether you're helping someone else like this little boy uh that, that's you know having his life fall apart but you're there to to pick him up and help him around do you think that it's possible to get to that period of growth or go through it or that period of enlightenment without having to interact with the, the third grade boy or without having to go through perhaps some of the adversity that other people have and they've shared in the past? Interesting question. I think, I think experience teaches, but I would think what made me grow more was self-reflection. And that self-reflection is what made me go seek more because I didn't feel like uh, maybe I was good enough or I could handle that particular situation enough. So I need to go get the tools to come back to the situation and grow. So an example would be, um, one year I was teaching third grade, I had a student, she can read any word that I put in front of her, but could not comprehend a lick. She could not tell you anything she read. She knew the words. And I was like, I don't understand what's going on with her. That's the reason why I went to get my master's in reading. Because I said, if I have one student like this, and this is my first year teaching. So the second year of teaching, I went to get my master's. 
if I have one student like that, then I may have more. And I'm not equipped to be able to even know what to do. So I need to go back to school to learn how to diagnose reading difficulties so that I can help my students read better. And that's the reason why I went back. So it was that self-reflection piece. I could have been that teacher that was like, that's just one student. I got 20 other students to worry about and not really, and just move on. And still I, I could have grown in different ways still as, as life went on as a teacher. But I think that self-reflection piece um, has really been integral to me wanting to be better so I can do better for, for my students. So it's a tr- tricky, interesting question. Um, but I think experience teaches and self-reflection kind of is a catalyst for more growth opportunities or maybe even growth at a deeper level. I think, you know, you grow, but how much you grow I think that that's the difference between having those experiences and that willingness to follow up with um, how you can be better for the students that you're serving. And that's why I don't teach any of my classes the same. Every class looks different um, because once I'm introduced to those students, I begin to see how I need to approach that content matter for them. So one year or one semester, I have a group of students where project-based learning is, is what they need and they're getting it. But then another semester, it's that, you know, we're faced a lot of, we're faced with some challenges and they lead, need something different. Um, so self-reflection really um, helps. Yes, there could be growth, but experiences, I mean, that's I've learned through those experiences um, and that knowledge and thirst to do better And to be better is, I don't know, I guess, why I do it, (laughs) in a sense, yeah. Part of it is also selfish, and I'm having more conversation recently with my teenage stepdaughters, and, uh, you know, they often come down to, oh, I did this, and it wasn't the smartest thing to do, and I'm happy that they feel comfortable talking to me about that. and and usually, you know, I, I plead with them and I say, hey, I made the same mistake or I, I can see that you're about to make this mistake if you continue on this path. Do you think it's going to lead to success in the long term or is this just short term instant gratification monkey, you know, jumping on your back saying, go do this, go do this and it's going to be good. Um, so I, I guess the the answer to the the desire to know the answer to that question is more so how do I encapsulate my own experiences so that the kids don't have to go through that and they can look at me and say, oh, he went through that and he got a summer job instead of concentrating on a class in school. And now he potentially might have messed up his perfect 4.0 GPA as a result of that. Uh, so how is it that you know you, you get that point across to the next generation without having them have to see a third grader without parents or without grandparents? Uh, maybe not to that extent, but maybe you don't make the small mistakes so that the big ones don't happen. Correct. Um, I First of all, I think that every child is different. Um, I was the child that did not have to learn by experience. 
but I have a twin sister that was a total opposite and she had to learn by experience. It took her a lot longer to get to where she needed to be, but she's there making way more money than I'm making right now. (laughs) And it took her longer to get there, but experience taught her something that her just being obedient would not have taught her soon enough. So I think that every child is different. Can they get there even though they um, don't take heed to the advice of the parent or the adult? Yes, they can get there. Because in the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's their determination and willpower that's going to get them there. Sometimes um, messing up one or two times allows them to really see I need to really get serious um, about things. And sometimes I think that allowing them to fall is the best way so that they they know that they have the power to con- to control what happens next. So sometimes allowing them to fall. Um, I have a family member that, you know, um, she was always, her parents were always there to catch her, always there to catch her. So she really didn't know what it meant to be resilient because someone was there to always fix things or to do things for her without her having to consciously make those decisions and messing up, getting back on her feet, taking 10 steps forward, moving five steps back. So right now it's a bit of a challenge to be an adult because she hadn't had those experience where she had to fall and learn how to get back up. So I think it kind of depends on the, the, the child and their personality. And sometimes we can tell them, but sometimes experience is the better teacher for some of them. Um, but can they get there despite the different roles that they may take? Yes, absolutely. I've seen it time and time again. Students from um, my elementary years coming back and say, Miss Walden, I didn't listen, but this is what I'm doing now. And it's a joy to see that finally they got it together. But then they also say, well, I wish I didn't have to go down that long path. But I've learned so much that I needed it. So it's kind of, it depends on the child because I think that all... um, Kids, youth, teenagers are different, and we may take different paths sometimes, but we can still end up at the same destination. That part's infuriating because that requires me to give up control, and I don't like doing that. <laughs> sure. The, the joke uh, in our family is typically I, I tell my significant other, half jokingly and half serious that if everyone just listened to me and they did the things the way I want them to do them, no one would have these problems. Everyone would just be, you know, a millionaire and they'd be geniuses. But I I don't think I've uh, reached that level of enlightenment yet. (laughs) Dang it. All right. to, To switch gears to questions that I got from yesterday's interviewee, um, there's four wonderful questions. What are you most proud? Sorry. What are you? M- oh, sorry. I just can't read. What are you most proud of accomplishing in your life? Hmm. 
That's an interesting question because it's really hard for me to think um, that way. Give me two or three. If one is, you know, if you can't think of one accomplishment, maybe other, maybe there's two or three things that you can't choose between. One thing that I am proud that I did was actually um, take the job as a principal because it was never my intention to be a principal. I knew I always wanted to be a college professor, but I did not want to be a principal. Um, But I was at a point in my career where I felt like um, what else is there to do? You know, like every three years, I'm like, okay, I got to do something different because I'm bored. I was at that point in my career. Like I've taught third grade, I've taught fourth grade, I've taught fifth grade, sixth grade, I've taught middle school. Um, What is there to do? What else is there to do? Like I felt like I had mastered a lot of the things that I I had identified as um, weaknesses and now was ready for a new challenge. So principalship was, I think, the best um, thing for me. Um, It developed my leadership skills. Um, I was that shy, timid teacher that was a very hard worker, but don't put me in front of anybody. I I can show up and show out in front of students, but I am not speaking in front of the parents tonight. Like that was me as a teacher. So being a principal really got me out of my shell um, in terms of public speaking and, and engagement. So I developed as a leader in that way. I learned so much um, about schools And I think that the knowledge that I share with my students today, most of it comes from um, the knowledge and experiences that I share with my students today. It comes from those four years of being a principal. Um, So that was a a game changer for me. So I'm I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that um, I'm getting invitations from students for graduations from that time period. Um, parents are sending text messages. I still have the same phone number. So parents sending text messages thanking me for uh, being a part of their kids' lives. Like that really makes me, you know, feel good that the time invested really eventually paid off. So that's one. Um, and then getting my PhD because the reason why I have my PhD today is because I made a decision to leave principalship um, before. I took the job as principal. I had finished my qualifying examination and all I needed to do was the research. But because I was so vested in getting things right at the school um, and I I loved everything I was doing, of course, my writing and research didn't happen. (laughs) So I had to make a conscious decision after year four, like eh, I can lose everything in two years. Like it's a terminal degree. I can't start this thing all over. So I had a, um, a talk with my students about it. I pulled all the students together, K through ninth grade, and we had an assembly. And I asked them, if you could remember one thing that Principal Walden has instilled with you during these four years, what have I always told you? And they said, finish what you started. Finish what you started. And so I told them, you know, I have to finish what I started. Like I started this degree before I became principal. And now, you know, is at a point where I need to finish it. 
And so next year I won't be your principal, but I'll still be around. I'll still be a part of your lives. Over half of um, the cafeteria was crying at that point, um, including me, because I really, really enjoyed changing life experiences for those students and really exposing them to opportunities. I really enjoyed that. Um, There was a supportive parent group. The parents were involved. It was great. But I knew that if I didn't go back to finish the PhD, that um, I'll be giving up on something that I set out to do, and that was to get that PhD. So I went back and like all these opportunities, you know, I'm leaving a job with benefits. Like I now I'm going to be an adjunct teaching two classes. There's no way that I will be able to afford to, to live. But so many different opportunities came available at that point where I was living with someone paying nothing. Like, how does that happen? My own room, my own bathroom, my own space. And it's just things worked out. I was able to finish my um, degree. And I remember my graduation party. A lot of the students came that were, that were at the, uh, the school where I was principal. And they gave all these wonderful speeches. Like, we're so proud of you, Dr. Walden, um, for being an example um, to us by finishing what you started. Um, and some of these students are in college now. And it's just rewarding to see how a personal decision to finish what I started has been the catalyst for many of them to keep on doing what they're doing. So if I, that makes me proud. That's an accomplishment in my eyes um, in terms of, you know, what one positive decision can do for other students that look up to you. That's it. I can't, I can't think of nothing else. That's all right. Those are two very substantial accomplishments. So, uh, what is your guilty pleasure? Oh, have too many guilty pleasures, but I would say that um, it's probably sitting on the couch watching Netflix, um, (laughs) knowing that I have papers to grade (laughs) and feeling guilty the next morning that I did not take advantage of the time that I could have had to have the papers finished. So, I mean, I'm not a big person in TV and watching all that type of stuff, but Sometimes you just got to break away. And so I have my little Netflix marathons, watching different things and then feel guilty the next day. But I think it's time well deserved when you're always busy doing something. <laughs> sure. And and one little quote that I picked up, or I'm going to steal from Marcella, uh, she mentioned day before yesterday that if you wait until the very last possible minute to do something, it only takes one minute to do. Hmm. So if you wait, you know, two hours before the deadline to grade your, your papers or your it tests, it only faster. takes two hours a day to do them. Uh, it's true. I, That's true. <laughs> I wish it worked that way for our appraisals, though. It, it doesn't. It, well, <laughs> that's actually how the conversation started. She said that I, I, I was lamenting about not having done mine yet. And uh, she said, oh, I did mine, you know, in the previous deadline. And uh, yeah, that I'm I didn't guilty. want to ask for an I extension. Haven't. I'm not so. finished either. 
It's been a very uh, weird semester, and I'm just not motivated to really do that. Like, don't you see that my students were successful? Like, this was, uh, just they just should have said no appraisal this semester, and I would have been like, yes. So I'm with you. I'm not finished yet. It'll be finished by June 30th, but. Yeah, it, it, it's hopefully it only takes five minutes. Okay, keep I, I on hoping. It, I, keep I on know hoping. that it. <laughs> I know keep that it hoping. won't. But I looked at it day before. I looked at it yesterday. I t- jotted down some points. Uh, hopefully, well, it'll get done by the thirtieth. Yeah, eventually. It, I've been it, stuck it on done. one question for a month. Wow. I've done everything else. I have one question, and that que- thats the first question that asks you to look at your. Not necessarily look at your grade distributions, but that's what I typically do for that to determine success and the learning outcomes. It's just mm-hmm. it's just that one question. Everything else is done. I'm gonna get to it. Maybe June 29th. <laughs> Still got two days, two more days. All right. What hidden talent do you have that people typically don't know about you? Um I sing. Uh, my siblings and I, my mom, we're a musical, um, talented family. So a lot of people don't know that I do that, but I typically only do it with my family. I'm not a soloist, not by far, but um, that's something that many people don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I think that's the only hidden one. All right, cool. Uh, when ordering dinner, soup or salad? Why are you asking so many hard questions? I, I these are the questions I got, so I I don't have the ability to change them. I to stay true to the format, I just ask the questions the the person before you asked, and I'm going to request the same of you for the next person I interview. Yeah, it really depends if it's cold as soup. If I'm in the okay. healthy mood, a healthy mood, then salad. All right. Fair enough. That works. So most likely in Florida, it will be salad. <laughs> Not too many cold nights. Yeah, it gets too hot and muggy outside uh, to, to have any hot soup. All right. Well, the last question I have is um, what episode or what title would you give your episode? and or this podcast at large? Mm. Is that why yours is still titled, I need a title for this podcast? Because you can't think of one either. (laughs) I think I mentioned it in one of the previous episodes, but when I created, my my students said, you know, you need to do this. So I I came under peer pressure and and pressure from students to to create an account on this website, Anchor, where all the episodes are hosted. And when you're creating an, an account, it, you know, it goes through this, the, the usual, what's your first name, what's your last name, what's mm-hmm. your email, yada, yada, yada. And then it said uh, title of podcast. And I said, well, I, I'm just creating an account. I don't know what my title is going to be. I don't even know what the podcast is going to be yeah. about. Woo. So I thought I could just put in a placeholder and 
I was thinking out loud, so I said, I need a title, guys. I need a title. And no one was being supportive, and so I just wrote down, I need a title podcast. Uh, and and th- that's what ended up happening. And later on, I, I learned about how um, the most successful of companies have always leveraged other people's intellect and creativity. Mm-hmm. So Apple doesn't make, I mean, they do make apps of their own, but they usually, you know, will get someone else to do something very well and then say, Hey, we can modify it slightly and make it better or just buy it. And now you're part of our family and now you work for us. Mm-hmm. We're just going to use your stuff. So <laughs> wow. it, it was a lot easier to get someone else to come up with the mm-hmm. content as opposed to me having to do it myself. And the same applied for the title as well. Wow. So sorry, it's my questions are born out of my laziness. Yeah, something about the word that I'm thinking out, the word would be unique, uniqueness. Um, I don't think I'm quirky, but some people may think I'm weird. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful title. Some people may think I'm weird. I, I think that's a fantastic title. I don't think <laughs> I'm weird or quirky, but some people might think I'm weird. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Especially people that don't embrace, you know, culturally responsive teaching and building relationships. They may say that's too much time. Like, really? But it's the secret sauce. It's the secret sauce. On that note, thank you so much for sharing your morning and, well, afternoon with me. I I truly appreciate your time. I don't want to take more of it, but it was an absolute pleasure talking with you and and getting to know you better. And hopefully we can do this again, and it's not just a a one-time occasion. Yes, thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. Thank you again. I hope you enjoyed that exchange with Kalisha. After our conversation was over, she shared that she was actually the CEO of a company called Transformation by Design Consulting. She shared that her company is an extension of her passion to educate and believes that the transformation process begins with the creation of safe spaces for educators to learn, take risks, and to grow. If you have any questions about training or coaching, please feel free to reach out to her. Her website is transformationbydesignconsulting.com. For the next conversation, I invited Professor Lawana McCoy, math professor at the Boca campus. So much so that the, the manager of the hospital came and personally apologized to me because I was just so broken. I, I just said, I cannot do this. Why are, why are you guys doing this to me? You should have let me die. I, I should have never got that blood transfusion. All of this was coming out. And my poor husband at the time didn't know what to do. So um, my family all came because they really thought I was losing it. And I think I was too. Until next time, For another 83 times, take care.